Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi there. Welcome to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. My name is Zach Twomley, and you're a lovely history friend. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, then you're so welcome, and I hope that you listen to the other episodes too, otherwise you probably won't know what's going on. For example, you might not even know what the big three is, but you should, because it's a very, very important part of the whole Versailles Paris Peace Conference experience. During the last two months, well, in November and in December, we haven't really been delving too deeply into the key issues or key points of the Paris Peace Conference, and indeed the Versailles Anniversary Project itself has been almost a bit gentle in the way that it's been starting off. For example, the fact that there hasn't been an episode in a few days almost made me feel bad, and then I realised the absolute enormity of what's to come, and I don't feel so bad anymore. So enjoy this little break while you have it, and beware of what's to come in the new year, because oh boy, there's an awful lot to come. Not only is there an awful lot of content in this series, there is also something very special called the Delegation Game on the way as well. What is the Delegation Game? Well, in case you were living under a podcast-shaped rock for the last several weeks, you should know by now that the Delegation Game is a interactive fantasy football, fantasy booking, Dungeons & Dragons style game that I have planned that will launch on the 18th of 
January 2019 and will coincide with the beginning of the Paris Peace Conference. You design your avatar, you send the details to me, and I put you as part of this story that I'll be building for the next six months or so. Every single week, there'll be different challenges that these delegates have to face, and you can take part in these challenges by voting on the Facebook group, which seems like the most ideal and sensible place to have those polls. And we'll be having other different competitions as well, such as factoring in how long you've been there, factoring in your character's experience and his qualifications, and then we'll be making up the difference with dice rolls and everything else. It's going to be really, really fun. I've got so many great ideas for it. I'm keeping a few of them under wraps, but I'm also open to other suggestions too. So if you have any ideas, or if you would like to suggest a delegate yourself, all you have to do is pay $6 a month for the privilege. Those $6 will provide you with a passport that will take you to Paris. We already have 20 delegates there, so you'll be joining some very good company. And a lot of polls, interestingly enough. Seems like the polls are going to do pretty darn well. But of course, that $6 doesn't just get you participation in the delegation game. $6 is the highest amount you'll have to pay for actual content. But $5, and there's been several recent history friends signing up, so that's really cool, because that means that those new $5 patrons know full well that they are about to get an awful lot of extra podcast content. Everything from the Jan Sobieski biography to 1956 to everything that's to come from the Age of Bismarck to all sorts of different stuff. So make sure that you remember that signing up for a delegate status is not just entitling you to participate in the game. I mean, it is, and it's going to be a really fun game, but that's not all you're going to be doing. You'll also have access to all that back catalogue of extra content to feast upon. And hey, maybe you could do one of those weird things that people have done before, where they buy a friend a subscription to this podcast on Patreon for several months. I actually did that with Ancestry.co.uk for a while with my dad, where I basically paid for the cost of Ancestry, and then he was able to look up the Twomley family surname's history. Because I can tell you right now, the Twomley surname got around a little bit, and it's a bit of a weird surname, as I'm sure you're aware. So tracking it down is fun, and I provided that privilege to my dad. If you would like to provide similar gifts for your other half, your friend, whatever, your relative, your dad, let's face it, dads are hard to buy for. So if you know that they like When Diplomacy Fails, maybe a subscription to the extra feed or delegate status for just $6 a month could be all that they want. Let's not ramble anymore. Thanks so much for listening. And since I won't see you until the 26th of December, I hope you have a lovely, enjoyable Christmas.
in which we are involved. France and Italy, between them, have made waste people to the Treaty of Versailles, and the whole field of international relationships is in perilous confusion. The affairs of the world can be set straight only by the firmest and most determined exhibition of the will to lead and make the right prevail. We're here because we're here, because we're here, because we're here. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, Episode 17. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Versailles Anniversary Project, Episode 17. Last time, we saw how two important landmark moments, the general election and Woodrow Wilson's arrival in Paris, shaped the proceedings of the Paris Peace Conference, before it had even begun. In the grand scheme of things, December wasn't as uneventful a month as the other months that are to come, but it was still a very fateful time for those that were about to participate, because it set the groundwork for a lot of things that were, well, on the way. Before they got to Paris, the big three were busy shifting their pieces around the board and getting their affairs in order, and in this episode we tie up some loose ends of the big three before their series of meetings and arrangements brought them face to face in mid-January 1919. Without any further ado then, let's get you into this weighted month of December 1918. It was clear, whatever happened, that the British, French and Americans were destined to play a dominant role. What was not clear was whether each power would achieve its objectives, objectives which varied dramatically between each national leader, as the historian Robert Binkley, writing for the Political Science Quarterly, reminds us when he noted that American policy was at once most insistent upon international organisation and most jealous of infringements on sovereignty. French policy was torn by two contrary loyalties, on the one hand to the principle of the right of self-determination, and on the other to a Rhineland security plan in conflict with that right. The British were interested in creating maximum stability in Europe, but were also committed to a reparations policy which could only mean the negation of stability. November had been a month of great activity and expectations, and December looked set to be no different. Woodrow Wilson was en route to France and would arrive on the 13th of December, but while George Clemenceau happily met the American president at long last, Lloyd George insisted he was unable to leave the country until the results of the general election were confirmed. It wasn't until the 28th of December, following the gathering up of so many overseas soldiers' votes, that the huge majority of Lloyd George's coalition was affirmed, and the Prime Minister's mandate secured. Lloyd George's political distractions at home meant that the actual opening of the Paris Peace Conference had to be delayed, a fact which Lloyd George certainly apologised for, but which irritated Woodrow Wilson and House, who had begun building their own impressions of the Welshman before they had even met him. Perhaps Wilson was envious of Lloyd George's political sleight of hand. After all, the President's fate in the midterm elections for Congress fatally undermined 
rather than confirmed Wilson's mandate. Just because David Lloyd George was unable to travel to France and connect with the French Premier and American President did not mean that he couldn't bring some elements of the preliminaries to Britain. As Woodrow Wilson began his journey to France on the 3rd of December, an interesting conference was underway in London concerning the British, French and Italian Premiers. Edward House had been invited, but since late November he had been struck down with one of his many illnesses and was unable to attend. This meant that an American presence was lacking at this London conference, which lasted only for two days over the 2nd and 3rd of December. The conference may have thus had a distinctly European flavour, but all involved tied themselves in knots in their efforts to emphasise to Wilson that they were not intending to go behind the President's back, not at all. The London conference, on the contrary, was merely a manifestation of Lloyd George's frustration at being out of the loop. It was a politically savvy move, though, because Brits watched as the Allied leaders came to them, and the influential magnetic pull of the country had clearly not been dulled by the war. For the moment, the British Prime Minister still possessed the power to call for a conference of his own, though his intentions had not been to exclude the President's right-hand man, House's exclusion added to his personal dislike of the British and favour for the French. At this early stage, it was believed with some justification that the French were bound to be the natural ally of Washington and of Wilson's vision. The British, who were still clinging to their insistence on dominating the seas, were potentially dangerous and at any rate a great deal more powerful than the damaged French. Perhaps because of this weakness and because his ambitions for restricting Germany did not yet perplex Wilson as much as they would, George Clemenceau found that he could build a great rapport with House in particular, and the first meeting the two held on the 14th of December went very well. Clemenceau interrupted Wilson only once to confirm his support of the League of Nations. Even the fact that Clemenceau met with Wilson first counted against Lloyd George, but in time, the commonality between the two English-speaking powers would tell out as the French became more and more isolated. While he had his cooperation and favour, Clemenceau did what he could to maintain it. When informing House about his intention to meet with Lloyd George, the Frenchman was at pains to emphasise that this was no effort to undercut the President. As House recalled in a telegram for Wilson on the 30th of November, Clemenceau called on me this afternoon. He said that he had come to give me his solemn word of honour that he would discuss no question of any importance with George in London. He said that the meeting was of no importance whatever, and he thought that George had asked him to come over simply for electioneering purposes. He said that he thought it most inopportune to call a meeting of this sort on the eve of your departure for France. He added that if Great Britain adopted during the conference a grasping attitude, France would oppose it. France, he said, would always be willing to submit her claims to the judgment of the conference. Our conference lasted only 15 minutes, inasmuch as today has been my first day out of bed. Clemenceau said that he would stay in London only two days. Margaret Macmillan notes that thanks to squabbling between the Italians, French and British over issues like the partition of the Ottoman Empire and Italian pretensions to the Adriatic, nothing of consequence was really decided at the London conference. But that is not wholly true. Nothing of substance was agreed to, that is true, insofar as no great problems were solved or questions answered, but several important decisions about the structure and form of the looming Paris Peace Conference was revealed. This in itself was a pressing question. With the world's governments converging in Paris, 
it was vital that some kind of organised way of hearing their claims and addressing their concerns was developed. I want to take the time to unravel these decisions today because even while they were completely at odds with what was eventually decided during the bulk of the conference, this early flash of decision making helps us get to grips with what these men expected to see and deal with. As we will learn today, what they expected and what they got in the end were two very different things, and I believe it is a useful exercise to contrast these two elements. Thanks to Edward House's report, we have a concise account of what was agreed to at the London conference. House's telegram had to travel the scenic route before getting into the President's hands, since both the President and the Secretary of State were at that point travelling to France. Even in this telegram, House made sure to remark on his central importance by detailing all the figures who had filled him in on what had transpired at the London conference, and this at least means that his account benefits from several sources. On the 7th of December 1918, in any case, addressed to the Acting Secretary of State, Frank Polk, because the actual Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, was on the way to France with the President, House expressed three important points, which it is worth going over now. House wrote that the first resolution agreed to in the meeting on the 2nd of December at 11am pushed for the Establishment of Inter-Allied Commission, Belgium, France, Great Britain, Italy and the United States, each to have three delegates thereon and Japan one delegate, to examine and report on amount that enemy countries are able to pay for reparation and indemnity, form of payment also to be considered. The commission to meet in Paris, provided the United States government agrees. Each government to compile its claims for reparation, which will be referred to examination by Inter-Allied Commission, to be nominated when claims are prepared. The mention of reparations and the Allied determination to address the issue as soon as the London conference opened tells us much about where the priorities and anxieties of the victorious powers lay. This inter-allied commission would be recast as the Reparations Commission in later months, and in future episodes we will trace the evolution of the reparations idea, as well as its impact, myths and controversies. There is obviously a lot to unpack in this reparations monster, but it is significant that reparations feature virtually at the top of the aims of those that assembled in London, before the actual date of the conference, or even whether or not that conference would be a final or merely a preliminary one, was settled, Questions of how much the defeated would pay were already foremost in everyone's minds, and how could they not be? To pay for the damage and what had been suffered, the French and Belgians certainly would have been of the opinion that the reconstruction would be impossible without German monies. However, the second point may surprise us, if we are unfamiliar with how angry the post-war rhetoric proceeded in late 1918. This resolution, summarised by House, stated that the British, French and Italian governments agree that Kaiser and principal accomplices should be brought to trial before international court. Immediate action to be taken in this matter provided President Wilson agrees, otherwise matter to be left for discussion after President Wilson arrives. The idea that the Kaiser would stand trial for his crimes seems like an ambition too grand by several decades. Placing state leaders on trial before all the world would take place, but not for another generation, and not until the Second War had been fought. Lloyd George, in particular, made much out of the Kaiser's personal culpability for the war. A commission of responsibilities was even set up in the spring of 1919, but its main task, that of holding the Kaiser to account, 
was abandoned by April 1919, when it was accepted that the Dutch could not be pressured into giving Wilhelm II up, nor was it certain what would have been done with the Kaiser if the Dutch had been willing. Among the victorious populations, some were pragmatic and wise enough to accept that Wilhelm's greatest crime was to have been on the losing side. As a contemporary French author remembered in 1920, I still remember a mass meeting in 1918 at Milwaukee where two speakers addressed the crowd, an American, who was Ambassador James Gerard, and a Frenchman, myself. In speaking of Germany, the more moderate was certainly the Frenchman. I still hear Mr. James Gerard shouting amidst the terrific applause of the audience. After what has happened, he said, can we consent to sit at a table and negotiate with assassins? No, never. The Kaiser, his sons, big, fat, safe and healthy, and his statesmen will have to pay the forfeit that all instigators of crimes and murders have to pay, as provided in the laws of men. And turning toward me, he added, be sure to say it when you go back to France. I did say it, and I am very much afraid, alas, that I was believed. Still more vehement was Mr. Lloyd George. In December 1918, having to address a proclamation to the British nation before the elections, he wrote over his signature a manifesto exposing the six principal demands of victorious England. The first two were word for word the following. Number one, trial of the Kaiser. Number two, punishment of those responsible for atrocities. Just as surely as Lloyd George was eager to milk his wartime record, he was also eager to milk the expectations of the electorate and to inflate the possibilities for what could actually be achieved. The idea that the orange would be squeezed until the pips squeaked was but one example of this rhetoric, which proved immensely popular in Britain. Lloyd George surely knew that the reality of making Germany pay was not so simple, but it is unlikely at the same time that he realised precisely how complicated and difficult the whole process would be. In addition to the topic of reparations and punishing the Germans, House elaborated on the third important resolution, which the first proper peacetime gathering of the European Allies produced. This was the less exciting but still significant issue of structure, and the resolution read, British, French and Italian governments agree that before preliminaries of peace shall be signed, an inter-allied conference be held in Paris or Versailles, the date thereof to be set after the arrival of the President. France, Great Britain, Italy, Japan and the United States should each be represented by five delegates. British colonial representatives are to attend as additional members when questions directly affecting them are considered. Smaller allied powers are not to be represented, except when questions concerning them are discussed. Nations attaining their independence since the war are to be heard by the Inter-Allied Conference. This overcomplicated anticipation of how the peacemaking procedures would play out reminds us that everyone was flying by the seat of their pants in late 1918. Few realised that the conference which they gathered to attend in Paris represented THE conference, thanks in large part to cumbersome rulings like these, which stated that an inter-allied conference should gather in Paris or Versailles first, and thereupon, once the important details had been hammered out, the heavy hitters like Woodrow Wilson and George Clemenceau, etc., would leave, with the task of applying these decisions, then down to the bureaucrats and junior statesmen who remained. In actual fact, this inter-allied conference turned into the Paris Peace Conference, against the expectations of most who did not expect to be in the French capital for all that long. 
The anticipated shape of the conference was wrong as well. While this resolution did set out the bare bones and the broad structure which would be followed, where the major powers chaired the conference and the smaller or dominion powers only spoke up when needed, the actual governing council which ended up controlling the early part of the Paris Peace Conference consisted not of five powers with five delegates each, an immensely bloated vision of a conference. Instead, a more streamlined Council of Ten, also known as the Supreme Council, would emerge. This council consisted of ten individuals, as the name suggests, with the leaders of Britain, France, Italy, the United States and Japan attending, accompanied by each of their foreign ministers. This structure took shape only the day after the major figures met together, on the 13th of January 1919. Thereafter, the Supreme Council would only shrink, becoming first a council of four when the Japanese and other foreign ministers were excluded, and then only three once the Italians left in disgust in April. Thus, House's telegrams in the first week of December demonstrate that, even while nothing concrete or of much substance was agreed to, patterns and trends were emerging which we would be wise to bear in mind. It boggles the mind just how unprepared for what followed these leaders were, or how misguided they were when they envisioned a small conference followed by the real conference shortly thereafter. Protocol and the experience of history dictated that this formula was to be expected, and it was also believed to be the most effective way to reach decisions. As time passed and the world outside Paris grew more volatile though, those men who had once planned to stay only as long as was necessary accepted that they would have to see this wretched thing through to the end. With David Lloyd George somewhat satisfied that he had had some say in the preliminaries without having to leave the comfort of his island, and with Woodrow Wilson hosted in France by George Clemenceau throughout much of the second half of December, the three men were evidently moving closer together as they finalised their affairs and prepared for what was certainly bound to be the main event of the conference in the new year. The big three of Woodrow Wilson, George Clemenceau and David Lloyd George were in many respects far apart from each other as December progressed. They were all distracted by matters at home in their own way, perhaps with the exception of George Clemenceau, who nonetheless was still anxious to please the electorate and live up to the reputation he had as the Tiger. They all had very different aims and saw the looming peace conference very differently as well. One thing which they did have in common in early to mid-December, though, was that none expected that between them, these three men would effectively hammer out the Treaty of Versailles and its associated issues like the League of Nations, reparations and mandates. We have spent a great deal of time pulling all the disparate character threads of these men together, a task which is essential if we're to fully appreciate where each man was coming from and what he contributed to the settlements which followed. The expectations of the diplomatic formula and the impressions each man had of his counterpart were all soon to be challenged, but before these three men met, the British Prime Minister worked one last bit of magic, and he arranged for the American President to visit him in London on the 26th of December, 1918. The American visit to London was bound to be couched in significance. Here was the President of the 13 colonies returning home to the mother country, but Wilson was as far as one could possibly be from the supplicant vassal or dominion leader. He was the president of a world power now, a power which had the potential to surpass Britain in every field within a generation. The Americans would harness their potential in the years to come, but for Woodrow Wilson and David Lloyd George, it remained for them to harness something else. The great potential which the cooperation of the two Anglo-Saxon superpowers could bring to the table. 
one would have to wait and see whether this vaunted partnership would live up to the hype. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 